Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Jackson Pios back on the show. I was just looking, and this is Jackson's fifth time on the show, uh, third solo episode. He's been on for two roundtables, um, and it, the first episode was episode 158, and that was 2019, and we were basically talking about what we're going to be talking about today, but everything's going to be updated because Jackson's been working his ass off um, on this new study that's come out. And I imagine a lot of the audience have seen it. I'm actually kind of, this is how quick the evidence-based community are on just like dispersing information and getting like very well-written infographics out about studies, which has been really cool to see. So this is actually going to be episode 250 now. So almost a hundred episodes since the first one that we've had together. But the study was named Continuous Versus Intermittent Dieting for Fat Loss and Fat-Free Mass Retention in Resistance-Trained Adults, the ICECAP trial, which is, I, I like the acronym, uh, very easy to remember. And so essentially looking at diet breaks. And this is a really cool study, I think, because it's actually done in a population that we really care about. Uh, leaner individuals, resistance-trained individuals, not kind of the obesity individual, which all the other kind of intermittent dieting approaches have been. So I know you had a hypothesis and you obviously went in to kind of prove that right or wrong. Uh, and you had your kind of protocols, Jackson. I don't know if you want to uh, run through uh, the listeners, kind of what you did, what you found, and then we can dig into some of the meat. Yeah, it, it, it's funny you made that comment about how quickly the, the evidence-based community um, jumps on these studies. Um, Menno actually had a write-up of the paper on his site before I'd even received the email from the journal saying, congratulations, your paper had been published ahead of print. That's mad. So like I had people saying, oh, like, oh cool, I, I saw your paper on Menno, Menno's website. I'm like, what What paper? Like, it's crazy. But anyway, it's a good thing. So I, I'm, I'm not mad about it at all. Um, now, you are correct. So in 2000. And 19, um, I wrote a review paper in collaboration uh, with some of the big dogs like Lane Norton, Eric Helms, uh, and Andy Galpin. Um, and it was titled Intermittent Dieting Theoretical Considerations uh, for the Athlete. And basically, we hypothesized um, some of the benefits that intermittent dieting, i.e. dieting uh, protocols that utilize refeeds and, and diet breaks uh, might have to weight trained um, athletes. And we used the uh, limited but reasonable body of, of research um, to support um, our cases that we made there. Now, we thought that there, at the time, uh, we thought there was decent at least um, theoretical and mechanistic data to suggest that using either one or the other or both um, refeeds and diet breaks could potentially enhance the retention of metabolic rate uh, during dieting and weight loss periods, enhance the retention of um, fat-free mass, i.e. muscle, um, and um, encourage or improve fat loss efficiency. Uh, another side hypothesis that we had based on some of the acute overfeeding data with carbohydrates, uh, we, we hypothesized that the intermittent boost in carbohydrate intake delivered from a refeed or diet break could trigger an upsurge in leptin circulations in the blood that could have a flow on effect to a what we consider a metabolic boosting effect, uh, as well as a appetite suppressing effect so there were we had a, we had a whole host of, of ideas in our head based on sort of pulling little bits of, of data um, from here and there um, and and I'll be honest I was I was very confident um, that we were going to see these um, expectations get verified when running a, a randomized controlled trial um, in, in in weight trained um, athletes now for the listeners who are familiar with the study, which was only published a couple of weeks ago, uh, basically I had to do a 360 uh, or a 180 on that one because um, a lot of the things that I thought were going to happen uh, just didn't happen. So to summarize the findings, um, well, before I summarize the findings, I'll, I'll summarize the, the study design. 
So we recruited just over 60 weight trained athletes, males and females. Um, over 90% of them were actually involved in competitive sports, whether that was competing in, in I say sports loosely, um, competing in sort of bodybuilding, f- physique competitions or, or boxing, rugby, rowing, things like that. So we, it was while they only had to do at least or, or sort of more than two weight training sessions per week for at least the, the previous six months, uh, they were relatively experienced and, and, and um, uh, well-trained athletic cohort because they, 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 most of them, nine out of 10 were, were competing in some form uh, or another. Now we randomized the study cohort into two groups. We had a continuous dieting group who did 12 weeks of a moderate calorie deficit continuously, or we had an intermittent diet group who did 12 weeks of dieting as well with a moderate calorie deficit. But after every three weeks of that dieting, we gave them a one week diet break where we took their calories up to their new predicted maintenance via an increase solely via an increase um, in carbohydrate intake before taking them back down um, to their moderate calorie deficit for for the subsequent three week dieting period. So of course, this meant that the intermittent group um, had a slightly longer intervention period when you tack on um, the diet breaks uh, in there as well. Now, um, both groups, their their cal- caloric prescription was designed to cause approximately 0.7% uh, body weight losses uh, per week during the dieting periods, which is in line with recommendations for, for rates of, of weight loss um, in athletes. Uh, and this worked out when we actually sort of mapped that out the data. It, it, on average, uh, the, both groups were losing around 400 grams um, of, of body weight uh, per week. Now, um, we also saw that during the diet break weeks, um, which was a good sign because it shows that the diet break prescription, number one, was adhered to and our caloric prescription for it was pretty accurate as well. The average weight change was, was less than 100 grams. It was around 89 grams. So that shows that we're pretty damn close um, to maintenance. Now, what did we see with the study when we, when we compared these, these two dietary protocols? Well, what we saw is that after the 12, after both groups had done their 12 weeks of dieting, uh, they lost the, the, basically the same amount of weight. They lost the same amount of fat. They lost the same amount of fat free mass. Their metabolic rate dropped the same. <laughs> so sort of all these things that I expected to favor, uh, the intermittent dieting or, or diet break group, uh, basically got, got sort of flipped on their head. Um, to, to say it softly. Now, this was not to say that we didn't see um, any benefits with the diet breaks because we absolutely did. It just wasn't the benefits I expected. So what we did see, we saw that eight people dropped out of the continuous dieting group, whereas only four people dropped out of the diet break group. So that potentially might give us a hint that, okay, maybe one of the protocols is a little bit harder to follow for a given amount of weight and and fat loss. Um, Secondly, we saw that when we compared the caloric intake in the dietary logs, um, so think of it like a MyFitnessPal log, when we compared the actual numbers that were logged by the participants versus what they were actually supposed to eat, i.e. their targets, um, the the diet break group was around 88% adherent their targets, whereas the continuous dieting group was around 69% um, adherence, which again suggests that, okay, maybe one of these protocols is a little bit harder to to follow or or maintain um, in the long term because the the guys that were doing the diet breaks during their dieting weeks, they were just much closer um, to their caloric targets as the weeks went by. So this is starting to sort of paint a little bit of a picture here. Now, we might ask the question, okay, well, why is, um, why, why, why are more people dropping out of the continuous group? Why are less people sticking to their targets in the continuous group? Now, what I think is the case, and we have the data to support this, if, if you read the study, we saw notably, and, and, and when you look at the graphs, this is really quite significant difference here. Um, 
we saw notably lower hunger and notably higher uh, satisfaction in the group that was having um, the diet breaks. And this was quite consistent over the, the entire intervention. So what I think could potentially be happening is that the diet breaks are allowing for easier appetite management. So you just don't feel so damn hungry. Whereas the poor guys in the continuous dieting group, I think hunger just sort of started really creeping up um, and became a little bit more difficult um, to deal with. When you're fucking hungry all the time, that's when the protocol becomes really sort of the, the enjoyment starts to wade um, quite quickly and then you start questioning, why am I doing this diet? Why am I in this jackass's study? Um, maybe I should drop out. And that was probably the case like in, in, in a few of the dropouts. Um, so what I think, yeah, was actually happening is, is that we had this one group that was just found it a little easier to, to, to maintain the caloric prescriptions and the, and, and the weight loss guidelines because the hunger just wasn't so savage and their satisfaction um, was, uh, was a little bit higher. Now, I actually, um, I, didn't, I didn't make this connection until I sort of started trying to think about the other research in the realm. But if I take you guys back to the Matador trial, which um, for those who don't know, was a diet break study as well, but they gave two week diet breaks after every two weeks of dieting. Uh, we saw that the, the, the group using the diet breaks um, actually had significantly better um, fat loss and weight loss compared to the group that just continuously dieted the whole time. Now, originally we thought, okay, well, maybe this is because the diet breaks are enhancing fat loss efficiency or upregulating um, metabolism and things like that. But what, what happens? And, and this is particularly important because we've got to remember that this was an overweight cohort. People that are typically not fantastic with caloric adherence to begin with, otherwise they wouldn't be overweight. Now, what happens if the group having the diet breaks, maybe they were just able to stick to their caloric prescription a little better because their hunger just wasn't so bad compared to the continuous group who wasn't having the diet breaks. Maybe the hunger just got to that, that, that red line threshold where like, fuck it, okay, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have some snacks. You know what I mean? Um, maybe that was actually a, a more indicative of why we saw the better fat loss in, in the group having the diet breaks as a pro, opposed to this like metabolic advantage um, that we originally speculated. So to sort of summarize what, what I think uh, were the, the main take homes um, from the ice cap trial, um, number one, I think that, um, that the appetite management is probably I, I'm, I'm not going to say is a home run, but I'm pretty confident based on sort of some of the things that we see that we looked into with Matador and, and sort of the, the lack of explanation from the better metabolic retention that was seen in the intermittent diet group compared to um, the, the magnitude of fat loss that was actually better in the diet break group. I'll say that another way because that was crap. So what we saw was that the intermittent dieting group um, who was having the diet breaks in Matador, they, they preserved their metabolic rate by around, on average, 100 calories more than the continuous dieting group. That was just nowhere near enough to explain the better fat loss that we saw. Like they were, they were losing kilos and kilos more fat loss than the continuous dieting group. 100 calories of metabolic preservation is not going to do that. There has to be something else at play. And what I think is, is at play is this higher hunger in the continuous group that's threatening adherence and, and, and causing more oopsie moments. So what I do think at, at this stage as we talk here and now, I think that we can reasonably confidently say that diet breaks will allow for easier hunger management for a given amount of weight and fat loss, i.e. you can get a certain amount of fat without fat off without experiencing as much hunger. Um, and then this has a flow on effect to adherence and enjoyment. So you're not feeling so damn hungry all the time. So it's just a, le a little bit easier to stick to that 25% caloric mm. deficit. Um, and because you're not feeling so hungry all the time, 
you, you're not having to go through that negative psychological sensations 24 seven, which you and I will know, Steve, that, that, that you do experience in prep and, and things like that. To be able to turn that, that, that negative sensation off for a little bit, or, or at least dim down um, the switch, that would be, that would be a, a massive win. Um, so I think they're the, they're the main benefits that are coming from diet breaks this stage, at this stage. Um, whereas if you asked me two years ago, I, I would have said, okay, I think, I think it's these physiological advantages that are, that are really the stock behind refeeds and diet breaks. Um, but it just doesn't seem that diet breaks really do have this profound retention on fat-free mass and, and metabolism and, and things like that. It, it just doesn't really seem um, like it happens. And especially when we, um, when we um, compare that to the Bill Campbell refeed study, where we didn't actually see any significantly better preservation of metabolic rate in the refeed group, and we didn't actually see any significantly better um, preservation of at least fat-free mass in the refeed group. This whole picture is sort of, when we pull the pieces together, it's just starting to look like um, the, the physiological benefits of refeeds and, and diet breaks have probably been overhyped for a long, long time. And it's more likely the hunger management benefits that allowing easier adherence and overall protocol enjoyment that are the real sort of key drivers of, the, of their success. Awesome. Uh, amazing summary. And I have to just actually like make people aware how much like to give you huge credit for the study. Like I looked at the setup in terms of kind of you had the four weeks of maintenance beforehand, kind of self-reported food intake, but kind of weighing in each week, reporting to a researcher each week. And I was just like, this looks like and like three weeks dieting, one week diet break. It's like, this looks like a like evidence-based online coaches like set up here. And all the nutrition was oh, man, obviously I, I following guidelines, everything. I had 60 free clients checking in each week. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. So no, I mean, like very well done. One question I did have though, I don't know if I got this wrong, but looking at kind of um, levels of body fat, I think it was measured via DEXA and uh, people were starting out at around 20% for the men and 30% for the women. Is that right? Or have I got that wrong? No, How lean were that they? Sounds pretty yeah. That sounds pretty correct. Yeah. So they weren't super lean, yeah. um, but not super fat either. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you think out of interest, do you think that would influence things like do you think that would influence the results i think that's probably the next step in this yeah. in this little research realm that's probably the um the the next sort of bit that we need to pull back the curtain a little bit because um I, i've said this on podcasts before at least from a theoretical rationale it does make sense that the leaner you are the more potential sort of that refeeds and diet breaks could have on at least sort of lean mass preservation. I'm not, I'm not comfortable saying metabolic preservation, but I am comfortable to say lean mass preservation. And I'll tell you why. So when we look at the data on sort of overweight individuals who are, who are losing weight, often we, ne we, we never see any changes in, in, in fat-free mass. Sometimes it even goes up. It, it's like, it just yeah. doesn't happen because the, the amount of body fat that they have just has a very protective effect over fat-free mass, but the less sort of fat that you have, that's when you lose that protective effect. And the leaner you are, that's when you become more and more at risk um, of, of sort of being susceptible to, to lean mass losses. So if we keep that in mind, it does make sense that, okay, perhaps if we had a cohort starting at 12, 10% body fat in the males who are already like reasonably decently lean, but they're going for that like last six weeks into a show, um, would there be different outcomes on, on sort of lean ass preservation? Um, if we gave them, if we like sprinkled in some diet breaks for those guys versus just dieting for them hard for the home stretch. What do I think? I don't know. Maybe, um, like th this is this, this game is all guesswork now because yeah. like two years ago, I was, I was willing to put all my chips <laughs> in like the like diet breaks of the physiological, like, um, holy grail, but. Um, I had to like take those chips back real quick. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. It, it's maybe, but I, I, I definitely think that, that that would be the the next cool research question to ask is, is do things change when we've got these really, really lean guys? Um, yeah. And I, I would say maybe um, I'm, um, yeah, I, I think, I think the difference could be with what sort of, what sort of things are going on with, with the lean mass. Um, I, I don't think, um, 
I don't think the 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 metabolic advantages are going to be there. I just I don't I don't think a two day, a three day, or even a seven day period of maintenance is just a potent enough of a stimulus to be able to normalize metabolic rate suppression notably. I just yeah. don't think it's the case. Um, like I've got some future studies that are coming out um, that show that if you measure immediately before and after the diet break, resting metabolic rate, that you do see a boost by day seven of the diet break. But, and so people might be like, oh, cool, like metabolic boost. But the, basically immediately that the caloric deficit is reestablished, it's just like, bang, we're back. Like yeah. it, it's not like it stays elevated for a couple of weeks of dieting like we maybe thought. Yeah. Like we thought we can boost it up and then ride out a bit of higher, higher metabolism for a couple of weeks. doesn't seem like it happens. So like, I don't think we can trick the body like that. I think as soon as, as, soon as that deficit stimulus is there, um, RMR comes right back down. So, I, I, yeah, metabolic advantages of refeeds and diet breaks is something that I've stepped back on um, in a big way. I just don't think we have the the data um, to support that. And I think we've actually got data support like sort of goes against it. Yeah. Um, in terms of the hormonal hypotheses, um, that'd be something I'd like to tap into a little bit more as well. Um, like I did run blood work um, in ISCAP because I wanted to show that by giving carbohydrate dominant diet breaks, that we were going to see an upsurge um, in leptin and this was going to have all these magical yeah. effects on metabolism and, and things like that. Um, but, and I actually did a, a, a freaking damn comprehensive hormonal profile. So I did leptin, I did ghrelin, so I did PIY, the hunger hormones and, and um, apto, uh, sorry, satiety hormones. I did the anabolic hormones, I did testosterone, IGF-1. Um, we did the, the metabolic hormones like, like T3, thyroid, um, to see what was sort of going on with these things. And um, the big one was that we saw no change in leptin between the groups. And on sort of when you really like think about it, it does make sense because you think, okay, leptin's being released from the adipose cells, the, 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 the fat cells. Um, when we're reducing body fat, i.e. during weight loss, we're going to be producing leptin. Like how much extra leptin are we really going to be able to produce when we've reduced our fat cell size Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Like, and we're just increasing carbohydrates for seven days. Like, are we gonna really be able to like, offset the effect that the leptin levels are so much, are so much reduced from the, from the result of the reduced adipose. It doesn't really seem too likely. And that was basically verified. So um, what we saw was that it doesn't really matter getting a bunch of carbohydrates for seven days at maintenance. Um, it, it just doesn't, it's not enough of a stimulus to really cause anything cool to happen with leptin. Now, something to say when you touched on like what happens if we had like a leaner cohort to work with, we know that with overweight people that are dieting or people with like higher body fats, um, sometimes we actually see like an increase in anabolic hormones like testosterone and yeah. IGF when body fat comes down. But on the flip side, when we're working with competitors, these things crash, you know what I mean? Um, now in ISCAP, we had like the medium body fat range dudes. Um, we didn't see any changes or I was expecting maybe some better retention of testosterone and IGF-1 in the diet break group, we didn't see it. But what happens if we had that a 10% cohort yeah. of, of body fat and that, that group, their, their testosterone IGF ones crashing, could they get more out of diet breaks? Could potentially those diet breaks allow them to sort of have a little bit of a normalization effect or, or, or an upsurge um, in those markers? And could that have an effect even on lean mass preservation and things like that? Maybe um, that that would that we won't know until um, we do these these studies um, in like a really lean cohort. But again, the problem that we have is a lot of people that are listening to podcasts are like just do the study, like do that, like go get sixty, like ten percent body fat, like athletes and run it. Like it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's 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 not that would be if someone did that, I would like stand up and I would salute them and say give them a slow clap because it, that, that sort of stuff is just so, so hard to do. Number one, like finding 60 
ten percent dudes that'd be willing to to be local and go on your study is damn near impossible. And secondly, it's super super freaking expensive. So um, yeah, it, it would be hard to do. Um, and my, my fear is that yes, we may be able to like have a look at these lean guys, but then. The, the downside is it's probably going to be a, a much smaller sample size than, than what yeah. I had in IceCap. And then people will make the criticisms, oh, well, it was only, it was only 12 people. Like, how much can we be confident? So it's sort of like a trade off. Like, I probably could have been like, okay, we're only letting guys in that are under 15% BF, but that would probably put my cohort size in half. Yeah. And I'd still be, I'd be, then I'd be criticized, like, well, how confident can we be in these numbers when there's only a cohort of 30? So it's sort of like a, a balance between sort of, uh, I guess, like the reality of like how sort of like the, the practical side of things, like yeah. uh, have we got like athletes that are really, really lean, like in the trenches, like those sort of guys versus like how realistic is this actually to do on a grand scale? And And those things aren't synonymous. It's sort of, if you choose one, you can't have, you can't have both. They sort of like, they, they, they move in combination. So that's, that's the tough thing about research is, is it would be great to have 60 freaking, I don't know, eight weeks out Olympia competitors in your <laughs> studies. Um, but that's just not, that's just not realistic, you know? And I think, I feel like some people are probably a little bit harsh on researchers. It was just yeah. like, just get them, just do the study on those guys. Like the, do the studies on the best guys in the world. And it's like far out. Like it's, it's so hard to do. Yeah. No, absolutely. I know Brad Schoenfeld uh, has similar frustrations because he's doing all this that like hypertrophy research and people have the same kind of criticisms to him. And I've spoken out with him and yeah, people unfortunately just don't seem to understand. That's why like, uh, I, I think you deserve a load of credit for this study because it was very applicable to a lot of people that a lot of the listeners will be and will be working with. I mean, the majority of people I still work with aren't competitive bodybuilders. So this is still quite helpful mm. for me as a coach because now I have some answers uh, more so and also kind of I can kind of think, well, maybe I can individualize my diet break approach depending on the person and kind of mm. what sort of person they're like. Do they like just getting the diet over with quicker or do they struggle with adherence, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I mean, the, the study's awesome. And a question I did have though, was I don't know this is more of a theoretical kind of what are your thoughts on it I know I think Eric Helms has talked about it potentially Lyle McDonald in terms of females and kind of maintaining their menstrual cycle like as they get leaner and I think they've said that kind of using refeeds and potentially diet breaks as well they've managed to maintain that I don't know if that's something you'd expect to see I know we were talking about kind of males and maintaining some of these kind of uh, hormones and if if they've seen that in females maybe there's a kind of a a sign there that maybe that there are some benefits yeah um it's a good question so like it in hindsight i probably would have liked to maybe tap into um the menstrual stuff like considering that the half our cohort um were, were female um but because i i dealt with all um the weekly check-ins of all the participants so like that that was the only way that I could control things and make sure like everything was consistent uh, along the way. Um, and from my gist of things is, is probably uh, the females weren't lean enough in my study to, to have to go through the amenorrhea or losing the cycle um, yeah. and things like that. So um, I can't stay too much from like what I was seeing in my study. Um, again, like, it has decent um, theoretical rationale. Like I, I know that um, in our review paper, me and Eric talked about um, a, 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 f a few studies which showed that like in dieted down females, um, like I think it was three day and five day sort of overfeeding periods were able to like trigger luteinizing hormone um, positivity and things like that and things that are, that are positively related um, with the menstrual cycle and, and basically bring it back on. Um, but yeah, I, I probably can't say um, too much uh, more than that. Like, I if if I had to, if if you're asking me what are my thoughts alone, I don't think that it's probably enough to like. If you're really really lean, I I don't think it's a diet break is going to save you. You know what I mean? Um, because I don't think it's I don't think losing the cycle is so much a sign 
of the deficit as it is a sign of being really damn lean because it's sort of the the incredible leanness that the female is experiencing um, and the lack of energy reserves where the body says, um, okay, like we're basically starving here. What, what systems can we shut off in the body that are energy intensive that aren't required for our survival? And, and, and one of those systems is, is reproduction. Um, and that's when those systems tend to go off. Um, it tend, they tend to go off when you're really lean, not when you've just established a really ma a big deficit or something like that. So with that in mind, if you're really lean and you run a diet break, I'm not super convinced that it's going to sort of be enough to, to, to stop that from happening because you're still lean at the end of the day yeah. and the body's still going to know it. So um, that would be my guess um, at this stage. Yeah, I guess it's the, the, I know I'm driving down the kind of for leaner individuals and I'm thinking like competitors, but I guess for some people they're thinking, well, should I use a diet break when I am getting that lean? Because now I'm extending the period of time to get leaner um, and I have to diet for longer. And then also this isn't a comfortable position to be in. It's like below maybe a, a body fat settling range and they start feeling really uncomfortable. So I don't know if you have thoughts on on that. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm, I, 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 my, my stance has changed a lot in the last 18 months. Um, I was very much like pro diet breaks, um, and use them for most people. Um, but now I'm sort of like those weeks that were spent sort of just in neutral cruising, like diet breaks where it's not, not really getting any closer to the goal. Um, they could probably be, better utilized sort of making the, the the weight loss phase shorter and putting into a phase or, or an improvement phase or, or or sort of getting back to um positive energy balance sooner as opposed because like if if it was a situation where these diet breaks were having all these physiological advantages like lean mass preservation holding on to more of our, our metabolism and giving us a more optimal um hormonal profile during dieting so i'd say throw the diet breaks in. It's worth the cost. It's worth yeah. that extra time investment. But now I'm like, okay, so we're saying there's no physiological advantages, at least for people that are of moderate, moderate body fat level. Um, there's no hormonal advantages. Uh, so the be the only advantages are a little bit less hunger and potentially that flows onto better adherence. Is that worth doing 25% longer weight loss in intervention? Maybe for some people, if, if hunger, hunger management is just a massive task for them and that's the sort of the, the reason why they fail on their preps or something like that, then maybe that's a wor worthy trade-off. But for a lot of other people, like I'd probably say just suck up a little bit of the extra hunger and do a 25% shorter weight loss period and then reinvest that time where you can actually be sort of in a, in a recovery diet and, and sort of in, improving yeah. um, because there, there's, there's not improvement going on in diet break weeks. Um, but if you allocate them to like a recovery phase, you're at any, you plat positive energy balance sooner. There's less feeling shit and suffering time. It just, it just seems like that that's probably not worth it in yeah. my mind. No, I think it, it's very interesting. It's almost, you could think, Oh, I don't know if you're going to have a, the, like the 12 week diet towards a, a stage and rather than have like the break every kind of after every year like every fourth week you could save up all those weeks at the end to kind of reversed and build up like people talk about where you are going to yeah. probably see a realistic better kind of establishment of all of these different things and maybe bring a better package at the end so that's that's very interesting what something that i always i know we've spoken about it before something i always um kind of i'm not sure i I sit with it. It's something I struggle with. And I've spoken to quite a few different coaches about it is during like deload weeks. So if you're cutting and you're going through a deload week, inevitably we're going to, I think uh, you probably agree, Jackson, you're going to need a deload at some stage due to accumulated fatigue uh, from your training. But obviously then uh, I guess it depends how you do your deload, but quite often they're kind of quite low volume, quite load, uh, low load uh, and kind of recovery focus. So you're not necessarily generating much of a, hypertrophic stimulus especially when you're very lean is that like a period of time where you're risking now kind of loss of muscle tissue is it does it make sense to at least reduce the deficit during that week uh wh where does your mind shift when you think about that yeah so um i'll give you my take so if you are deloading uh 
essentially your calorie deficit will reduce by definition as a result of less energy expenditure in the gym. So it's not going to reduce a, a whole lot, but it'll reduce a bit. Now, do I think that deloads are a good time to run these diet breaks uh, for like the, the lean mass preservation and things like that? Maybe, but I do have a new study coming out and it, it'll be out, uh, it'll be out this month. Um, it's awesome. been accepted. And what it showed was that when you actually run a diet break, so we're looking like we're, we're not looking over a chronic phase. We're looking inside the diet break directly. We see that across the seven days of the diet break at maintenance, carbohydrate dominant again, that you see a, a fairly significant improvement in muscular endurance, not so much strength, but endurance. So what that tells me is that by definition, endurance is the ability for the muscle to do more work for longer before fatiguing. So you are at a heightened ability to do more work for longer during a diet break week. Would that then make sense to run that diet break during a week when you're doing less work in the gym? Maybe not. Maybe perhaps it would be smarter to run that diet break week the week before the deload where you are actually potentially pushing yourself and you could actually sort of, um, you could draw those advantages from the ability to do extra or the, the heightened endurance, um, that the heightened performance that you'd be able to get during the diet break. I think that would potentially give more bang for your buck. I think if you ran the diet break during your deload, you're probably leaving those endurance and performance gains and, and benefits on the table. Do you think, uh, just to kind of, I guess, get asked this specific question, in the deload when uh, training is so low, do you think you're risking kind of muscle loss if you're in a deficit during that week? Obviously, it's less. Do you think there's really any much risk there? It's something I've been meaning to like dig into some studies. I don't even know if there is anything yeah. that really looks into it. See, but... Like I, 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 I used to think so. Yeah. And then when I, I, I actually hadn't dug into it. And the only time I dug into it was when COVID hit and no, <laughs> one could go, and, and no one could go to the gym. And I was asking myself these hard truths, like how much muscle am I going to lose right now? And I didn't know. So I started researching it, you know, and I was actually extremely surprised to know that you could take your volume, your initial training volumes down to a ninth of your previous volume and still not lose muscle mass. Now, most people reduce their, their, their training volumes during deload 30 to 50%, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in that vicinity. So you're, 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 you're still, you're still far from that one ninth um, of volume change. So I, yes, you are going to be more at risk than, than sort of the study that I'm quoting because those guys were in a deficit. But I still think that we're not at for only seven days time and we're still in the gym and, and still lifting decently. I just don't think that, that muscle, muscle loss is going to be uh, a massive risk during that time. Um, I, I think you're going to be, and th there's a few ways to do deloads, but I think you're going to be at even less risk um, of muscle loss if you reduce your training volumes but maintain your, your training intensity. So yeah. let's say that if you would do like four sets on bench with a given load and reps, you halve the volume, but you do two, just two hard working sets. You know what I mean? So the, the volumes reduced, the, those two sets are still hard. You're, you're just doing two instead of four. So the intensity is still maintained. Um, I think, it, yeah, I think muscle loss is, is going to be a low risk at that stage. Yeah. That's what I was shifting my perspective on. I was like, oh, if, if I am now thinking oh, diet breaks aren't having these strong physiological promising effects, then like my rationale on taking them during a deload is less strong. And then I'm kind of, my rationale for taking them in a deload again was muscle mass preservation. But if I was like, well, maybe I can deload a bit differently. And like you said, you can really slash your volume if you maintain intensity for a short period of time, mm -hmm. I would have, I would have thought you can maintain quite a lot of muscle mass. So mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think as a, especially as a bodybuilding competitor, it's hard enough convince yourself to deload, let alone then like not be losing fat that week, uh, maybe <laughs> by taking a break. And like you said, you're extending then the time of the prep 
and that might not be favorable if you are very lean because that's just uh, not a great place physiologically to be so um yeah mm. I, I think that not that that's like obviously i'm drawing a lot from a study that wasn't looking at that but it's certainly interesting to think about these things and again it's an area of research that is never going to get a lot of attention because it, it probably doesn't really deserve it to be honest but mm. um like resources are better spent elsewhere but it's nice that like your study here can at least lead to some kind of picking apart theoretical underpinnings to other mm. uh kind of programming methods i will i will just expand on on, on that that new study as well otherwise you you know, say uh, t next week you can ask me to come back on podcast <laughs> uh, <laughs> um so while we did see the the improvements in endurance um during the diet break um so we didn't see improvements in strength but we saw improvements in endurance uh we also saw notably notable increases in alertness and significant decreases in irritability so um that probably again factors into like if you are using diet breaks when should you use them um if you want if you it, we know that alertness is coming up and irritability is going down could that extra alertness potentially help the gym performance in like a, a uh, final week b before the deload or, or something like that where maybe that like that little extra focus um putting the hunger I, I i think the alertness is coming from a temporary suppression of of hunger where people can just sort of more focus on what's actually happening in their life as opposed to food. thinking about thinking about the food i think alert and that's probably why irritability has, has come down as well it's probably because hunger went down during the diet break but that's still helpful stuff because it said okay well on a really hard training week, um, if you are going to do diet breaks, maybe that's a, an okay time to have them because you're going to be more mentally switched on and you're going to be actually be able to focus on the training at hand instead of going in the gym thinking, oh, I've got a hard session here. Like I need to get it done so I can have my post-workout meal real as soon as possible. You know, there's there's a difference in the way that you're thinking about the session. Whereas it, it, if it is during the diet break, maybe maybe the mindset is like, I got this extra food in me. Let's put it to use and like let's really crank hard in this last week yeah. um, before before the deload kicks in. I don't know. No, I I definitely think that's really interesting. And actually, one point I know you mentioned Menno's article. I did read over it, and he mentioned about kind of the the continuous dieting group had the three weeks at the end where they were at maintenance, and you measured I think at twelve and then fifteen weeks because obviously the three on one off uh, had the 15 weeks to get the 12 weeks of dieting. And he kind of mentioned that he looked at that and kind of theorized that all oh, those three weeks of maintenance didn't even see like things leveling up in terms of the different hormones and things. I don't know if that's something you took home from the study as well. Like th even three weeks after a diet doesn't seem to have done a lot to these various hormone markers and things. Yeah. It's, it seems, it, it's weird. It's like, it's like you just can't beat the system. It's like, <laughs> you know, you know when people like the same thing was said about like intermittent fasting or like any sort of like caloric arrangements within 24 hours, yeah. every single time they've been trumped by like what's being consumed in that 24 hours. It doesn't matter what you fucking do inside it and the way you mix it up and switch it around, whatever in that 24 hours matters. And then it's sort of like, we can expand that further to like a week of dieting and like a weekly caloric deficit or a surplus and like you can do all the caloric cycling and all the changes and high days and low days. At the end of the day, it doesn't fucking matter. It's the caloric consumption over seven days that, that really explain things. And it's almost exactly the same thing if we just take it a little bit longer to like a 12 or a 15 week dieting phase. We've got all these like changes going on in and out, but it's like we just can't beat the system. It's like that cumulative energy intake and, and energy deficit over the entire period of the intervention that actually matters. And you can, you can lower it and you can upper it and you can turn it off and turn it on. But at the end of the day, like you, you sort of end up at a similar endpoint. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting to me because I have like uh, you diet so maybe you do diet someone for 12 weeks and you're like okay that's a pretty decent chunk of time you've maybe lost close to 10 percent of your total body weight i want to now have a break and it's like how long do you need that break to be so they're actually in a better position to diet again apart from probably way less hunger i imagine all those kind of factors that have improved mm. maybe they they did hear better at the start but they haven't actually they're not in a hormonally like better position after three weeks yeah, maybe. Like, I, I don't think that's going to happen unless there's weight gain happening right that's my that's my take on it now like, like I think you can diet someone down 
And I reckon if you gave them five to six weeks at maintenance, we're still not going to see much going on with the hormonal stuff and, 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 and the metabolic stuff. Like that's a massive flip into what I thought 18 months ago. I thought turn that positive energy, turn the, the energy deficit stimulus off and some good things are going to start happening. But now I'm like, okay, you can turn the deficit stimulus off, but unless there's sort of a surplus switch on, those good things still aren't happening. So I don't think we're going to see like, I think it could be any amount of weeks at maintenance post diet down. If there's if there's not weight gain, weight regain happening, I don't think we're going to see many good things happen. Which is sad. It's annoying. Yeah. It, it, like that sort of like bum bums us out. But because I like I, you would know how many clients ask you like they finish their 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 weight loss phase and then they're like, okay, Steve, like I want to maintain this condition, but I want to increase my metabolic capacity. It's like okay like like I, I don't think you can do one like one without the other you know yeah no it's i mean it's on one hand a lot of the theoretical things that we had uh, and thought maybe were occurring maybe aren't but now at least we have closer answers so at least for dieters uh, when you are dieting it does very much look like a like for a lot of people at least people who maybe don't have adherence issues and they their hunger management is good they especially experienced dieters if we're a lot of the listeners are competitors or they coach competitors or very serious about this so hopefully a lot of them have like good relationships with food and things it's like a big take home I, I would have thought for a lot of us is like do your diet and get your diet over with kind of asap yeah. rather than like messing around with these things yep yep i think so Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. And in terms of, uh, yeah, I guess that would be your overwhelming take home would be if you are that individual, like it's psychology independent kind of for these diet breaks for the most part at the moment. If you are that person who you have no kind of uh, date in mind, you don't have like any reason to rush the diet process, maybe more of a general pop person who hasn't got a lot of experience dieting, the diet breaks probably going to be uh, generally beneficial for that person. But for the more experienced dieter, someone who doesn't have adherence issues, who and even someone who has a deadline, maybe uh, removing the diet breaks is the way to go for that person. And you don't, yeah. you don't need to be black and white, I guess you can... Yeah. Use a bit both. yeah no i think i think you're right i think generally speaking um for the more hardcore serious athletes like competitors uh they're probably going to do better just doing a continuous dieting phase and i say serious like competitors because they're usually okay with enduring some suck for the end goal like they just understand that that's part and parcel of the process like it's going to hurt a little bit and that's fine we we accept that um i think those guys are going to do better just with a continuous dieting approach where you just say let's get the the weight off in a reasonable amount possible and let's not extend it any longer than it has to be uh and then potentially reallocate those weeks that could be spent on diet breaks as refeeding to the show or, or, or something like that, like get them ready early and then start eating up into the show. I think that would be a far better approach um, as opposed to sort of just sort of making this good progress and then sort of kicking into neutral for a week um, every now and again. Um, but for the, the less, I don't like saying serious, but I will say it anyway, the less serious athlete or more sort of gen pop dieter where like they want some results, but they don't want to hurt too bad. You know, like I think that's when the diet breaks can, can, can help them a lot because they're the sort of person where like uh, they have pretty good adherence at, at the start of a weight loss phase and then the, the hunger creeps up and then they sort of say, oh, fuck, I, I don't really like this. I don't know. I'm not sure if this pain is worth whatever the end goal is or, or the objective. And that's when adherence becomes under threat and, and we see some falling off the, off the wagon type deals. Uh, I think diet breaks could help those guys a lot. Um, I think that, yes, it's going to require a little bit longer until the attainment of said goal, but it's going to allow them to keep hunger at bay, um, a little bit higher satisfaction on the diet, um, potentially a, a more positive psychological well-being. And this is going to flow on to, to sort of facilitating adherence a little bit better uh, and less sort of moments of them sort of ravaging the cupboard 
um, looking for the Tim Tams when, when hunger just gets like a little bit difficult to manage. So um, I definitely, yeah, it, it's going to be very individually um, context-based and, and that's something that's changed a lot for me. Um, like 18 months ago with my clients, like 80, 90% will be having a diet break or a refeed in, in some yeah. form or another. Um, and now like 30, 40% might get them like at, like if they need them you know what i mean like it, it's i sort of i've changed that a lot um it, it's it's not a blanket prescription anymore like like it was yeah. sort of 18 months ago um so that's that's and i i suspect for the good coaches who listen to this sort of stuff that we'll see that sort of change sort of replicated um over 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 the coming months but yeah yeah another another like consideration is like if you've got a time sensitive goal uh like i'm i want to be as lean as i can in 10 weeks before my wedding photo shoot blah 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 like don't fuck like don't spend 20 30 percent of that time in neutral not going anywhere having diet breaks for a little bit easier hunger and maybe better adherence just knuckle down do the continuous stuff and get in the best shape in the quickest time possible um but for the people who don't have the hard end dates and it's sort of like an open-ended goal um that's when okay maybe maybe um diet breaks is, is a card that you can play awesome no i think it's uh having kind of kept an eye on your conversations and what you've been talking about I have slowly, I haven't, I, I used to have it very much like deload diet break used to be just like a standard approach. And slowly I've been doing maybe three days at maintenance during like a deload week at the end before the next cycle. And um, like I've been slowly manipulating it. So this is definitely helpful in terms of like, it's just getting more efficient, effective uh, results for your clients. So mm -hmm. um, I hope people do listen to this. I hope this gets a really good reception because I think it should. And I guess the more attention it gets, the more power we have potentially to drive more research into the area exactly. as well. So I'm excited for that. And uh, I guess we've got like 10 minutes here and I know I wanted to talk to you a little bit and maybe we'll do a whole podcast at some point on this, but um, you are not just a researcher and a coach. You also practice what you preach a lot and uh, you've been sharing a lot of kind of physique shots and uh, we spoke a little bit about kind of you're taking it to the next level a little bit with your own training and things. So I'd love to just hear kind of, and I think the audience would appreciate hearing kind of what your at least like short, medium, long-term kind of goals are personally. Yeah. So uh, for some background, like the last three years, I've been in the lab a lot. Um, and you basically are on call. You're at the discretion of your participants. If a participant says, calls you up and says, Jackson, I can, I can't do 11, but I can do 2 p.m. for your session. You say, okay, because you just don't like, it's that hard to get participants. You just need to have an open book. You need to be able to work around them because if I say, oh, no, I can't do that. Can we do it next week? Like you're screwed. You lose that participant. So I basically had to keep a fairly open calendar for the last three years. And as a result of that, um, my training and my dieting suffered. Um, like a lot of sometimes rushed workouts, um, planned workouts off the cuff, uh, sometimes missed workouts if like uh, shit just went, haywire at the lab like one time our freezer like just turned off our negative 80 degree freezer and i had to transport all my blood samples with oh, dry wow. ice from from one freezer to another freezer and i got home at like 11 p.m like stuff like that happens when you're working in a lab all the time um so I'm like my, my training my diet was okay um but i would say like if i had to summarize it there was a lot of like spinning wheels like happening like doing enough to maintain um but far from optimal uh, because I'm not spending time in the lab at the moment, uh, it's, it's basically all the, the studies that I've collected over the three years are just getting sort of written up on my laptop, getting published in journals um, and whatnot and, and discussing them online. Um, I do have now have that flexibility to sort of put myself first a little bit um, with, with my training and, and my nutrition. So um, basically at the start of this year, I just made uh, the commitment that uh, I was going to go all in with, with seeing how far, um, how far I could take my physique because I, I just haven't really put my physique first in, in, in the last sort of, sort of three years. So that meant a few things. That meant um, basically saying no to all future like partying and, and, and alcohol events completely, like complete abstinence, which like is tough because you've got to go in a dark hole for a little bit. Um, going completely meal plan based approach um 
And a lot of people in the evidence-based community were like, you fucking jackass, like, don't you know flexible dieting is so great? <laughs> like, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very up and down with, with flexible dieting. It's like diet breaks. It's highly contextual d- dependent. Um, and like name me one athlete on the high elite pro circuit who, who's eating pop chips and, and shit like that in their, in their diet and changing their diet day to day. It just doesn't happen. Um, I'm, I'm quite confident the body thrives off consistent eating. Um, I'm also very confident that sort of consistent eating delivers con- more consistent weigh-ins, less spikes across the week, uh, more consistent visual appearance uh, compared to if you're flexible dieting and you're changing your fiber intake and your sodium intake and things like that with different food sources day to day, things become a lot, a lot more washed. And, and I know that working with clients, um, my results with, with meal plan or at least sort of 90-10 compl- meal plan with some room for flexibility every now and again, the results are far better with those guys um, compared to like the, the guys who go completely flexible and just hit three numbers in my fitness pal each day um, because like there's a whole host of benefits. Tracking weight becomes way easier, more predictable. Tracking visual changes, way more easier, way more predictable. Performance is far more consistent when you're eating the same foods pre-workout and things like that. Uh, like if you, it, for example, 50 grams of carbohydrates coming from rice pre-workout has a completely different performance effect than 50 grams of carbs coming from Quest bars. You know what I mean? But in, in my fitness power, it's the same fucking number. So you, you can't expect like to be like. Yes, overall macro and caloric intake in 20, over a 24 hour period is going to explain 85, 90, 95% of the body composition results. But when you have been doing this shit for, for long enough, like, 85, 90, 95% is not getting the job done. It's not going to take you to the next level. So um, I've done enough to be able to to do okay doing the sort of the bread and butter stuff. But now it's sort of like add the the tasty sort of like treats and and, and sprinkles on top. That was a horrible analogy. I went from like a savory (laughs) meat. So I had like the ice cream there, but then I wanted to add the the whipped cream and, and the sprinkles and cherries on top. So um, my my diet is 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 quite repetitive. Um, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that, and I'll, I'm I'm not scared to admit that either. Like, I, and I've already got some flack um, from people in the evidence based community. Like, oh, you're just a bro, like eating bro foods. And I was like, like okay, like if you see it that way, but like, why why are you hating on that? Like this sort of food delivers consistent performance. I know how my body's going to feel. I know how my di- digestion is going to function. Uh, my, my scalp, I pretty much know what I'm going to weigh the next day. I know how I'm going to look the next day. Whereas like I've done fle- completely flexible dieting periods in the past. And, and it's like a fucking surprise every time you wake up, like what, what, what's going to happen, you know? Um, so that's, that, that is, that is the diet side of things. Um, very, very locked in with that. So I, I, I haven't missed a beat, um, with my diet since I started this phase and uh, that's something I can't say that I can't say that's been the truth for the, for the, the time before that. You know what I mean? Um, and even like to the degree of like scaling back social meals in, in a massive way. So pe- people will know if they follow me on Instagram the last few years, I'm a massive foodie, um, love my like Asian cuisines and, and things like that. And they're, they're a big part of my, my enjoyment, but um, I'm, 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 it's time to like put the goals first as opposed to like how much fun am I having right now? Um, because, so I've, I've had to scale those back, those things back um, in, in a big way. And, and yeah, it sucks. But like, if you're not prepared to sacrifice some shit, how much, how much do you truly care about, about getting better? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a summary of my, of, of my nutrition side of things. Um, and then my training, like I've, Training had been like very off the cuff um, for, for a long period of time. And it was, it was sort of like get in uh, and get the job done in an hour or, or, or so if I had the luxury to even get an hour. Um, but there wasn't too much meticulous planning. There wasn't too much tracking of things um, because I was just sort of thought, well, what's the point in tracking something like down to sort of the, the, the exact poundage if I like I might miss two workouts because yeah. my lab schedule just gets out of whack, you know? Um, so yeah, I've, I've written myself a plan. Um, I'm actually, we've touched on already, but the incorporating the three, seven method, um, of training, um, which is basically a variation on, I guess a rest pause protocol or like a my reps protocol. 
um, and, and uh, have, have been having great results with that. Um, I'm not going to say that it's purely due to the 3.7 because my diet has gone like haywire, like has is, is been really locked down in a massive way as well. And I'm not drinking, I'm not partying, I'm sleeping and th things like that, um, that I haven't been doing um, for a long time. But yeah, overall, it's just stop being happy with 80% of doing okay, like doing the 80%. It's it's like every percent now, yeah. like it's, it's everything measured, like down to the ground. There's no balance. It's not like, Oh, but you got to have balance and have your burgers with your friends on your Friday night. Like balance is out the window at the, at the moment. Like I'm um, to optimize results. Shit's not going to be in balance. You know, like you want like Kobe Bryant, like Michael Jordan, like they're, they're not living balanced lifestyles, you know, you know they're very unbalanced. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's basically my mindset at this time um results and progress have been superb um like shocker like do 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 everything you can to get better and, and you got better like oh wow who would have thought um progress has been great so far um and and certainly have like a fire lit inside to to see how far um how far i can take things and and, and really actually sort of put progress at, at the forefront of things for something I haven't been able to do uh, for a long time. That was probably way too long of a ramble, but <laughs> <laughs> it was good. I think, uh, I think we probably could turn that into a whole episode because like I, a typical interviewer style is I've got like five questions now, but uh, 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 maybe we'll have to do one of these another time. But as far yeah. as I'm concerned, it's like very inspiring to me to see it. And uh, I'm excited to watch your progress because it's been exciting so far, just seeing like glimpses of your physique come through and everything. So well, I know what happens when you dial in everything because there's a, like you said, I mean, like the Pareto rule kind of is there. It's a real thing. You can do very little to get a lot, but to get everything, there's a lot of shit you have to do, um, but yeah. it adds up uh, and it definitely adds up over time. So yeah, I'm very excited for that. And uh, yeah, I think the listeners are going to be enjoying uh, seeing that as well. I know you've been sharing a lot of good information for ages over on Instagram. So hopefully people are starting to jump on there. And if people want to learn more about kind of your research, uh, your coaching, all of that stuff, uh, where should they head Jackson? Yeah. So the best, first of all, thank, thank you for that, Steve. Um, I'm very, very appreciative and grateful for that. Um, the best place to get me is on Instagram at Jackson Pios. So research updates, educational posts, um, physique updates. Uh, I'm starting to post quotes and shit now because, <laughs> because like the, the mindset has just completely switched, um, uh, this year, but, uh, that's my, all my stuff's going through Instagram. Um, and then for like, if you, if you like what you see on Instagram and, and you want to see a bit more, um, I, I have started up a YouTube channel as well. Um, still early days on that, but, uh, really enjoying that as a platform to sort of, um, interact with, with people and get into sort of more deeper discussions in, than you could potentially have on Instagram because, um, with Instagram, like, fuck, you've got, I reckon you've got 15 or 20 seconds, if that. Um, and we've got a generation of people that are more fascinated with abs and asses than they are with education. Uh, so that is a detriment of Instagram at this stage. But with, with, with YouTube, uh, what I'm loving is like we've got people that are, that, and it would be the same to be said for podcasts, people coming to listen to, to this sort of stuff. We've got people that are coming to actually sit for, a, a extended uh, period of time um, to learn, listen and make themselves better. And, and that's why I love it so much. Yeah, for sure. I definitely can uh, say the same, especially uh, with reels and stuff coming out. It's a little bit challenging, uh, but yeah. In, Don't hate on my reels, Steve. You, you can take... <laughs> The people from IG to the YouTube, it's all, you got to play the game. So I, I, I feel you don't. I'm trying the same thing on Reels. It's it's a challenge for me as well. So um, guys, thank you so much for listening. Massive thank you to Jackson. I know this is going to go down really, 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 really well. Uh, I'll make sure all of those links to Jackson's IG and YouTube is uh, linked below so you can check those out. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks, guys. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course.
Your Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.